Hi, I'm Josh Hammer. And I'm Bhatia Unger-Sargon. This is another episode of The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we're going to be talking about marijuana. It is obviously an issue that has been part of the American political and cultural discourse, if you will, for decades, if not centuries. Um, increasingly an item that is found on the ballot box in state legislatures. Um, certainly this past November, uh, I, a number of additional states made moves to legalize it. I, I am currently living in Denver, Colorado, within walking distance of a number of dispensaries, so I certainly see this firsthand. Josh, are you high? <laughs> uh, uh, I'll plead the fifth on that one. No, I'm kidding, obviously. Um, but um, not not my uh, toxicant of choice, but that is okay. Um, so, uh, Body, why don't you kind of just tease a little bit about what we're about to hear? Yeah, uh, marijuana legalization is one of those issues that has seen a real sea change in America of late. So something like 60% of Americans now favor full legalization, 91% favor legalization for medical use. This was not true, you know, 10 years ago. This was probably not true five years ago. A third of the country now lives in a state where medical marijuana is legal. So, Josh, why don't you tell us about who we're going to have to debate this hot topic? All right. Well, we are thrilled to have on the program here Dr. Kevin Sabat, who is president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana and author of the recent book, Smokescreen, What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know. And then on the other side of the debate, we're going to have retired Major Neil Franklin, who was a 34-year law enforcement veteran of the Maryland State Police and Baltimore Police Department, uh, former head of the uh, Law Enforcement Action Partnership, uh, which advocates for reform to our drug laws. So, um, you know, we had these two uh, do a written debate for the for the Newsweek website in the print magazine last August, I believe it was, and uh, long overdue to get them on the podcast. So we just can't wait. So we'll take it to a quick break. And on the other side, Dr. Kevin Sabat versus Major Neil Franklin on marijuana. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So today we're debating marijuana, legalization, spreading, all things pertaining to marijuana, frankly. So, Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about our two excellent guests that we have on to debate this issue? We could not be more thrilled to have Dr. Kevin Sabat, a former White House senior drug policy advisor who served Obama, Bush, and Clinton. He is currently the president of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, and he's the author of Smokescreen, What the Marijuana Industry Doesn't Want You to Know. And we also have Major Neil Franklin, who was a police officer for 34 years. Thank you, sir, for your service. He is the former executive director of the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, a nonprofit of police, prosecutors, judges, and other law enforcement who advocate for changes to the criminal justice system. Welcome to you both. We could not be more thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. So you both debated um, this topic for us at Newsweek, and something we love to do on this podcast is to stress the areas that we agree about, even when we're disagreeing. And one of the most wonderful parts about your debate was that you both agreed that marijuana should be decriminalized. And that's kind of where the debate picks up. So I wonder if we could um, start from there and if you could each talk about what your position is on marijuana and criminal justice. Let's start with you, Major Franklin. So my current position, um, you know, as we talk about how we shouldn't be criminalizing people, for instance, for, for marijuana, it's also my position that we shouldn't be criminalizing anyone for drug use, no matter what the drug. Um, I think this country is finally moving in that direction and hopefully coming to terms with that. Um, 
But, you know, my position uh, as it relates to criminal justice period is that we need dramatic reforms, whether we're talking about drug policy, whether we're talking about policing, whether we're talking about corrections or our courts. Um, we're a very punitive nation. And I think it's time that we, we take a hard look at that and think very strongly about that and really work hard to come up with other alternatives to, you know, rather than criminalizing people for their behavior. And we, and we also recognize now that a lot of the, the behavior that we, we don't like uh, that we're seeing in people, um, a lot of that's re relative to mental health. And as, as a country, we haven't done our best in addressing the mental health needs of our citizens. Um, and it seems like our justice system somehow ended up as this stopgap, as this system that we've kind of like been using to deal with those issues. And, and there's much more, uh, especially when it comes to our youth, how we've moved in a direction of criminalizing young people for, God, I reflect back on when I was a youth, some of the things that I did that they're now criminalizing our kids for. Um, and that's something we need to take a very, very hard look at. So basically, um, my position is dramatic reform from one beginning to the end. And when you look at the justice system, it's made up of many different systems. And um, we just need dramatic reform, mainly in this area of drug policy. So Dr. Sabat, I know that there's parts there that you agree with and parts you disagree with. So why don't you tell us what your position is? Well, I think we'd agree on, you know, we don't need to be putting people in prison for using marijuana. I would also hope we would agree that marijuana can be a dangerous drug for a lot of people and that today's marijuana is much more harmful than it used to be. I think sometimes we, we get we lose the whole point of why, for example, uh, you know, President Biden has been stridently against the legalization of marijuana or why every major medical association in the country, including the American Medical Association and really every major health organization uh, does not think that the legalization of marijuana or other drugs is a good idea. So I think we have to remember that. Uh, but, I, you know, I will meet Neil, uh, you know, at a, at a lot of where he's at. Um, I absolutely think that we need to reform mental health in this country and speak about it and act on it very differently. And remember that, you know, uh, mental health is just as important as physical health and that a lot of what we're seeing with law enforcement incidents around the country have to do with mental illness. Uh, of course, I would argue that Marijuana, now that it's being used almost every day by between 15 and 20 million people, and that's, by the way, a number almost an order of magnitude larger than it was, you know, 25 years ago, um, that that has consequences and um, that, you know, it, that changes behavior too. And I don't think we should go overboard by criminalizing people, giving them an arrest record that follows them through their whole life or, you know, putting them behind bars. But I also think we need to work much better on prevention much better on awareness of the harms because most Americans don't really understand how harmful marijuana can be. They think it's like the old weed of the 60s. Um, and all, but, but I think we can do reforms. I absolutely think we need to do a much better job getting people into treatment. Sometimes, by the way, that means getting arrested. Now, I would wish that no one would need to get arrested. I, I would really want no one to get arrested, ideally. But Neil, you'll be, I think, I hope, agree with me that, for example, if you're driving under the influence of alcohol, you're going to be arrested. Now, we could throw you in prison and just, you know, have a, a sort of um, punitive response and forget about the fact that, you know, you're an alcoholic and need to get help. 
um, you know, or we can get you treatment, uh, you know, whether it's diverting you from long prison sentences to get treatment, whether it's a thing called a drug court where we integrate, um, you know, these principles in a courtroom setting. When I say these principles, I mean medical principles in a courtroom setting. Um, sometimes that, that, that has to happen because the person's not being arrested necessarily for their use of a drug. They're being arrested for the consequence that has happened as a result of their addiction. And we really underestimate how many crimes have to do with addiction in terms of behavioral change. And we need to do a much, much better job. I'll agree with Neil. We've, we've gone overboard oftentimes. And we need to really look at those sentences. And that's why groups like Right on Crime are doing that. And it's a, it's a bipartisan effort. Um, but I think we can't forget the role that all drugs, and including today's marijuana, can play in a lot of these negative consequences. So let me hop in here. I mean, it seems like we're off to a very uh, agreeable start. Um, let me see if I can possibly change it up a little bit. Um, so uh, Dr. Sabat or, or, or Kevin, if I may, um, one, of the themes, one of the themes that I pick up on from reading your columns, it's a point you make over and over and over again, and you kind of just tease it there in the last question, is that today's marijuana is not your grandfather's marijuana, is that what's happening on the street today is not what was happening in 1969, you know, when grandma was, was smoking doobie at Woodstock, for instance. Um, so right. can you just talk a little bit about, um, kind of break us down CBD versus THC, what is sure. actually happening on the THC levels here? Sure. Um, and then, Neil, I'll be curious if you have a response to what Kevin says on this. Sure. Well, it's really important to understand that marijuana is an incredibly complex plant. It's much more complex than, for example, opium, where we get, uh, you know, opium poppy to make opioids, or whether coca, where coca comes from. It's a very complex plant, marijuana. It has hundreds and hundreds of ingredients in it, most of which we actually do not know exactly their role, exactly how they act in the the brain's uh, cannabinoid system and other systems throughout the brain. But we know that one of those ingredients is called THC and that THC binds to receptors throughout the body and makes you feel that high. We know another ingredient, which does not bind to the receptors in the same way, so it doesn't make you high, really, is called CBD, cannabidiol, and there's many others that we've identified also. Um, what do we know about CBD? Well, we're learning about it. There's a lot of evidence that it's a great placebo, so when I hear my 70-year-old neighbor saying they rub CBD cream on their knee and it feels better, I'm great. I mean, I, you know, all the more power to them. I, I think that a lot of these companies are making outlandish claims. Um, and in fact, the FDA has only approved CBD for one or two things. Uh, and pain is not one of them. THC, on the other hand, is what is the uh, psychoactive ingredient, right? That's what, why you feel high. We've seen THC could be helpful in some limited medical capacities and, and for some specific, um, really palliative kind of uh, things. And um, we also know that THC can be addictive. In fact, the report came out two months ago from NIH leaders at NIH, actually, finding that uh, marijuana uh, uh, dependence disorder, so marijuana addiction among young people, uh, was twice as prevalent than cigarettes or alcohol, which is, I was actually shocked by that number, knowing how addictive nicotine is in cigarettes, seeing that today's marijuana was double the addictiveness of those two drugs was very surprising to see, even for me as someone who studies and reads about this every day. So I think a lot of people have a distorted image of what marijuana is because they remember the old joints. The final point I'll say on this is that marijuana is not 
delivered in the ways it used to be delivered, like mainly a joint or, you know, your roommate made brownies kind of in a haphazard way. Because of legalization, actually, because of commercialization and the corporate interests that, by the way, are completely taking over marijuana, because of that, we have these new products that we, we just have never seen before. We have 99% dabs and waxes and shatter. These are totally new um, in, over the last 10 years, and they're, they are, um, can be extremely dangerous, and we're only just learning about them. And, and Neil, from, from your perspective, I'm curious if you think that Kevin might be overstating the effect, which is this is that different, or um, just kind of general reactions to what Kevin said. Yeah, so uh, just a couple of quick comments. Um, I just want to address the arrest comparison for someone driving under the influence of alcohol that they should be taken off of the roads and that the RRS at Corsi. I agree with that because you're putting other people at risk, but it's not because of the use of alcohol. It's not because of the, the use of marijuana. It's because of what you do. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're, because you're using it, then that influences you to drive or causes you to drive while you're under the influence. We're arresting you for your behavior that you're, you're putting other people in danger. It's not the use. Let me just say that addressing the marijuana of yesterday versus the marijuana of today and the THC content, understand that the THC content that has the increase that we have seen all occurred while it was prohibited. When you have something like marijuana, whether we're talking marijuana, alcohol, or any other drugs out there, when you leave it unregulated, which basically you turn it over and put it right into the hands of the criminal marketplace, you know, organized crime, the cartels, there's no regulation. They do whatever they want to do. They can raise the THC content. They can, you know, uh, you know, they can farm it and causing environmental problems, um, you know, adulterants, uh, molds and, and insects. There's just no regu regulatory control over it. And this is one of the main reasons for bringing it out of the shadows and bringing it into the light under the law so that we can place regulations upon its use. And, and let's not be fooled. People have been using a lot of marijuana for a very, very long time. And that's not going to change. People are going to continue to do it. And for us to be responsible as a country, as, as citizens, it is, it is our responsibility to place it, to put it into a place to where we're going to have the best results regarding its quality, regarding its time and, and use restrictions and age restrictions. I mean, right now, when you're, and let me say, when I say right now, understand that when we first, I think when we first did this with Newsweek, it was about 10 states had adult use markets. And I think now it's almost doubled somewhere around 18. So as you can see, we're moving into this place of regulation, thank goodness. Because when we were unregulated as a nation, and even in many of our communities and neighborhoods today, when we talk about kids, kids are the ones selling it on our street corners. I mean, I grew up in Baltimore. I'm from Baltimore. We have a lot of problems in Baltimore with crime and violence and drug gangs and crews competing with one another for corners. And the shootings and the stabbings and all the mayhem that comes with that is because of the policy of prohibition, not because people are using drugs. We don't see that relative to the alcohol market. And, and it's problematic of a drug that alcohol is. We would never, ever think of going back to the days of alcohol prohibition, yeah. which is decriminalization. 
decriminalization. It was legal to use, but it wasn't legal to produce, transport, and to sell. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about just removing criminal penalties alone for marijuana today. It has to go into a legal regulated market to reduce the crime. There's a lot to unpack there. And I think now, now, Josh, you're getting your way. We're going to start disagreeing a lot or we're <laughs> going to continue to because um, we do. And I think we agree on some things, too, which is always good in this day and age. But there's a lot there that I think I need to correct. First of all, um, the THC increase absolutely was happening before we've seen, you know, medical markets. Of course, that we've become better farmers. I mean, we've become great farmers in the last 40 years. So we've learned how to breed the THC, but we never had anywhere near the THC levels or these these commercialized, marketable promotion, you know, these products since really the advent of a commercial market, which happened under medical and then continued under full legalization. So let's be very clear. You know, drug dealers are really bad people. They did not invent, though, the, the THC lollipop. I mean, Pablo Escobar could not have come up with the 99% dab in his wildest dreams, but good old American capitalism did come up with it. So it's very important to understand who's actually responsible for these increase in products. Wait, but Kevin, let me just let me just push yeah. back a, t- a tiny bit. Sure. How does that sure. not beg the question yeah. that Major well, Franklin needs to be regulated? Exactly, that right. it's, let's regulate it. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you why. Because we have we are completely failing at doing that everywhere. And yes, while maybe some academics in a room could write down as policy if everyone would follow it in a perfect world, we've had, you know, since 2012 in Colorado to try it out. It has been an abysmal failure. In my book, Smokescreen, I interviewed, you know, the former regulators in Colorado, lab owners in Colorado, people that were entrusted to do this. And they said, that's not happening at all for a lot of reasons, which are, you know, we could talk about for a long time, but that is just not happening. It's, it's, I wish it could happen. It's not happening. I will tell you in a state like Colorado, we are working. It's not like we're saying, you know, let's just fully prohibit it anymore. We're actually trying to do that, but we're going against these humongous interests. And actually, Neil, if you are here today to say that you're in favor of THC limits of, of these products, I would, honestly truly welcome that and I, we would be agreeing sorry josh we'd be well, we'd agree well, i think that's up, <laughs> but, to, but, that's up to the research that is right, coming forward well, the research that we're starting yeah. to see and what's coming forward well, the, policy yeah, is well, going to get better showing that seven hundred thousand people a year are going to the emergency when, room because of hypotheses it's also showing that six hundred thousand so, people are still being arrested for, for, for well, well, hold on yes because yes they are and that's a very good point neil we should they shouldn't be arrested but let me and just say many, wait, one point about the let's let kevin finish neil and then we're going to hear from you do you know how many people are being arrested for alcohol related offenses today double that of marijuana so that doesn't go away because you legalize it you have the negative effects that you are still arresting so we absolutely should work on our arrest things we should not think that there's been a reduction in incarceration or criminal justice interventions in legal states in fact among poor um, black kids in places like Colorado the disproportionality has gone up so we, we haven't seen those go down and finally in terms of, you know, we've used it for thousands of years. Uh, wait a minute. We've used, but by the way, by we, it's been a much small minority of the population for thousands of years have used, yes, 2% THC marijuana um, and alcohol we've been using for, for 5,000 years. But this new kind of marijuana, which is what I'm concerned about, is very, very new. 
And it is a result of our complete failure to be able to regulate it. I wish we could do it. We've never regulated anything that great. We have 500,000 people a year still dying of tobacco cigarettes. We don't regulate that well. And yet that's more regulated than anything else the FDA does, any other drug. We don't do a good job at that because of special interests, lobbying groups, big tobacco and big alcohol are involved in marijuana now, the market. We, it's a losing battle to try and do that. I'm not saying prohibition is perfect, but I would much rather be discouraging the use of these things rather than encouraging them. Well, first of all, I want to just clear up something. Um, Kevin, when you were talking about the arrest for alcohol yeah. versus, versus marijuana, I'm talking about marijuana possession. We're not having those numbers of people getting arrested for alcohol possession. I'm talking about the mere possession of marijuana where we're still arresting hundreds of thousands of people every year in states across this country for that. And also, as you, as you talk about the disparity, as you talk about the disparity issues, we have disparity issues in every freaking crime in this country. Okay. So that's a whole nother issue of race that we're not properly dealing with in this country. But overall, the hard numbers, the, the, the fewer numbers of people that are being arrested. And many of those are young black people who are no longer being arrested in states that now have adult use markets. And regarding this THC issue that you continue to hop on and hop on and hop on, I don't use marijuana, but obviously I talk to and interview so many people who do and know personally people have been using it for years and years and years. And even with the increase in the percentage of Mm -hmm. THC, when they get to that certain level of of feeling that, that they refer to from using, they're done. It doesn't matter what the, the research con- doesn't show that. The research Kevin, doesn't show that. Kevin, you can I'm find. I'm glad your friends you, do that. You I can find. Right, you let's can let Neil friends. finish his point. Let me finish, Kevin. <laughs> you can find research that will tell you anything that you well. want to hear. So for me, it, yeah, and believe me, the numbers of people that I do know and I do interact with, it, it's yeah. many who use. Okay. And you know what? <laughs> and you know what? They're very responsible people. They're very responsible people. When you continue to talk about this fear mongering, it's it's not good. It's not good for the people who hear it. It's not good for the country. Let's let's really get to what is the problem here with this issue of marijuana. And it is the policy. It always has been the policy that we've put in place in this country to deal with marijuana. And when you do the history, the research and the history on that, mm-hmm. it's a very, very bad place because it was about race. It was about culture. Mm-hmm. It was about people like Harry Anslinger who just had a very twisted mind when it came to putting these policies into place. So if you look at the history, if most people knew the history of it and how it came forward, they would want to do away with prohibition just because of that. All right, we've got to take a break. We'll be right back. And we definitely want to talk about all these issues, including race and mass incarceration. So stick with us. This is The Debate at Newsweek. We'll be right back. This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. Our guests are Kevin Sabat and Major Neil Franklin. We're so excited that you guys were able to join us. So I want to talk about an issue that uh, came up earlier in the segment um, about race, which is really important. And it was another thing that actually I was really glad to see that in your pieces on Newsweek about this topic, there was a lot of agreement. Um, Kevin, you were not walking away from or trying to ignore the question of race and policing when it comes to marijuana. But let's start with you, Neil. 
So uh, your opinion on this topic actually comes from kind of a personal place you wrote. You worked narcotics cases for three decades um, and as an officer with the Maryland State Police and Baltimore Police Departments. And you actually lost a friend and a coworker who was working undercover. And you write in your piece how this really influenced how you see this topic. Can you tell us about that? Um, did you change your mind on this issue? How have has it been impacted by your experiences, which really are no laughing matter? Yeah, so without getting into too much detail covering the, the assassination of Trooper Edward Totley, who was working undercover, you know, dealing with our drug prohibition policies, trying to make this place better. Um, it was his death, it was his assassination that caused me to take a step back and to really to begin to examine the violence that surrounded the policy of drug prohibition in this country. And, you know, comparing it to the problems that we had in the 1920s with alcohol prohibition, recognizing very quickly, it didn't take me long to realize that so much that the, the policy was more of a problem than drug use itself in this country. So it, it was the violence that I saw because after Ed was killed, we had a family of seven in Baltimore who was killed in one night by a, a, a local drug dealer who had controlled the corner outside of their home. And him and his crew had set up shop. And the mother was working with the police, not because she feared her sons becoming addicted and using drugs. She knew that if they became part of this crew, if they joined this crew, that their life expectancy dropped dramatically. That was her main concern, and that's why she was working with the police. But the leader of this crew decided that he was going to send a message to the neighborhood that you don't mess with him and his crew and their money. And he set their home on fire in the middle of the night. So it was these types of uh, acts of violence that, that woke me up because in policing, we were never taught the history of drug policy in this country. We were never taught the things that I now know about incarceration of people who use drugs in this country. We were never taught these things. So I started my own journey to find the truth about the policy of drugs in this country, of managing drugs in this country. And it was horrifying to me. And even way before I turned in my badge to retire, I started speaking publicly about this issue, you know, uh, trying to get others to, to educate themselves regarding this, these failed policies and all the things that come with it, that come with prohibition, again, the violence, the quality of drugs, the tainted products that are out there, people using, not knowing what they're using, how potent the things they're using. And, and, and that's pretty much how I got here. And the race part of it, just real quick, it also caused me to reflect upon our enforcement efforts and how we primarily concentrated our enforcement efforts in black and brown communities, mainly black communities. Yeah, on the Eastern Shore of Maryland, there are very, very few black communities, but that's where most, the lion's share of our enforcement work uh, was in, with the Maryland State Police. And, I, and I'm ashamed to say that I was part of that, contributed uh, to the arrest of so many people, not only personally making those arrests, but managing task force after task force after task force, and then hundreds and thousands being arrested for mainly for, for drug use. And most of those people we arrested by far was for the possession of marijuana because that's how we got our confidential informants. 
So, Kevin, tell us why the racial injustice piece of marijuana law enforcement does not lead logically to the legalization argument. Well, because we have a race problem in law enforcement, period. It's not about marijuana law enforcement. And so this idea of myopically focusing on marijuana, we actually, I would argue, we're, we're missing the bigger picture here. Um, you know, when you look at who's actually in prison in this country, marijuana, I mean, in state prison, you can barely find, I think it's 0.3%. Um, for all drugs, it's about 6% for drug possession on the state level in terms of where drug possession small drug possession was the reason why that person was in state prison. It's about 6%. Um, federally, it's different because federally, we're looking at big traffickers and big big time dealers. So I absolutely think we need to confront the race issue head on. And again, I think there would be common ground that Neil and I would have on that. Um, but surprisingly, and I think it may even surprise Neil too, because I think sometimes in these debates, we're put in these, these buckets of you know <laughs> these, these false dichotomies. But I will also say that we need to look, about, look at the victimization of addiction. Uh, who does addiction hurt the most? You know, why are there eight times as many liquor stores in poorer communities of color in Neil's hometown of Baltimore than in upper in the, the those disenfranchised parts of Baltimore than in upper class communities? It's because we have what we call addiction for profit and the addiction for profit um, industry, alcohol, tobacco, opioids, marijuana now. They target the people with the least resources because those are the ones that are more likely to become addicted to their product. They're the more likely to be to be, um, you know, putting money in the pockets of the of the of the of the shareholders and the people on the board. And so when that happens, um, you you know, you you create that kind of victimization. And that is exactly why for cigarettes is the same thing. Look at look at the composition of people who still smoke and die of smoke smoking. It is by far low income communities, um, low wage communities. The same thing as with the opioid epidemic. Uh, in, in the opioid epidemic's case, it wasn't poor black urban community. It was poor rural white community in the beginning of the opioid epidemic. We look at West Virginia and Ohio and Kentucky. So they, they have one thing in common, and that's more the economic class. And so that is something that we need to talk about. It's again, in, in Smokescreen, my book, I highlight the two heroes of Compton, California, of all places. I mean, Compton is the home of where they've come up with the term chronic. I mean, it's like, you know, but in Compton, California, you had two community activists, two black activists who said, you know, drugs are not going to offer hope to our kids. We do not want pot shops here. And, and they actually banned pot shops in Compton, California regardless of the fact that that state has legalized marijuana in California, of course. So so we have to talk about the victimization of these communities for also addiction, but absolutely on the law enforcement and punitive level and and find, of course, we have to find a better way to do it. Yeah, you know, and again, we would agree on a lot of that, but, but we can't forget the other side of it, which is that addiction um, especially hurts the disenfranchised. So let me hop in there. Um... So I, I'm a lawyer by training. Uh, went to University of Chicago for law school, clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. So I, I, to the, even though I'm currently in media, I still think about the law a lot is the point here. Um, so let me kind of ask like two kind of uh, legally tinged questions and we'll switch the order. We'll start with Kevin. I, so two things that you learn in law school, or at least I learned in law school during your first year. One is you, you study externalities. You study kind of externalities in the law kind of the classic economic externality example, you know, to go back to like the industrial age is like the polluter upstream in the river is putting toxic waste. The waste comes downstream, kind of calls for regulation. 
Um, so I'd be curious um, for both of your perspectives on uh, externalities or obviously lack thereof um, of marijuana use, both pertaining to kind of the highway fatalities that we mentioned earlier yeah. and maybe just kind of broader cultural externalities, if, if, if there are any. Um, Josh, can you define what an externality is for listeners who might not know as well as co-hosts who might not know? <laughs> sure. So uh, again, the toxic waste is kind of the quintessential example there. Um, it's basically when a private actor takes an action um, in his or her self-interest, um, but is not properly incentivized to care about uh, how it might uh, affect third parties. Um, it's, kind of, it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of a classic case calling for government regulation in theory. Um, so um, externalities on one hand. And then the second question um, as well, another thing you learn in law school is you kind of, or they teach you that the so-called slippery slope is kind of like a fear-mongering fallacy technique. Um, putting my own cards on the table a little bit, I've always been deeply skeptical of this. In fact, I kind of uh, amusingly, jestingly refer to it on Twitter as the iron law of the slippery slope. Um, so I'd be curious um, if there actually are genuine slippery slope concerns here pertaining to you know cocaine, heroin, all that stuff. Yeah, well, those are great questions. So absolutely, there are externalities, consequences that we are feeling um, as a result of legalization. I mean, again, it's it's legalization's problem fault that we have such an increase in the volume of use. Of course, people were always using, but the l numbers and the levels were much, much lower before states went this way and before really the federal government started looking the other way about 10 years ago entirely. Uh, and so um, we've seen that in car crashes. We've seen that with, 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 with fatalities and injuries. I think we've also seen that with workplace accidents, you know, um, this issue of the workplace and liability and, and those issues I think are big. We're seeing that with psychosis, schizophrenia and suicide. Um, again, I wish these stories didn't exist, but the, the stories out there um, and the data backing it up uh, on the mental health risks and the, you know, whether it's an acute hospital stay one or two days or whether, whether it's a much longer um, you know, much longer episode. I, you know, last week I, sp I spoke to a dad who, um, you know, has spent $500,000 on his kid's treatment from marijuana-induced mania and bipolar um, disorder. Uh, these are real, real consequences that are happening now that we're really ignoring. So I, I you know, and then there's environmental consequences. And again, you could say, well, that means that's an argument for it to be regulated. Um, sure. Yes. In Colorado, where it's legal, I absolutely think it should be more regulated than it is now. And that's why we helped put a bill through to start to go down that path against the industry's wishes big time. Um, but but it would be great if we could prevent it in the first place by not allowing these things to happen. Um, you know, one point that I need to correct what Neil said earlier, and it, it just goes against his experience, but that's OK. When you look at the data. Uh, overall in this country, actually the underground marijuana market is largely a nonviolent market. It's largely a here, you know, I'm giving you some marijuana for free, gifting it small quantities. It's not actually mixed with the other drug markets. Um, now in some places maybe it is, but by and large, the vast majority of people under 25 or really any age getting marijuana do not do it in some scary alleyway like those 80s commercials with the you know guy with the trench coat that had like all the different drugs you know for the kids um that's not that was i'll agree with neil that was fear-mongering that's not the reality of marijuana selling and so i would much rather to be honest have an underground market of six percent of people using marijuana that's a low grade five percent than what we have now which is approaching 20 percent regularly using you know north of 30 percent thc there's no contest in my mind which i'd rather have Number two was the question about the slippery slope. Um, 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that the reason we're seeing the psychedelic movement, although there may be some limited medical use in very limited settings, I'm not shutting the door on that, but in terms of widespread use of psychedelics and hallucinogens for sort of so-called non-medical or recreational, I don't like that term, use, um, there's a reason we're seeing it. It's because they're following the playbook of marijuana. And many of them have said, well, we want to do that with all drugs. We actually want to see all drugs legal. I actually commend Neil, even though we vehemently disagree on this. I commend him for being transparent over the last 10 or 20 years when it wasn't as popular. I'll give him props to saying, you know, and again, he can correct the record if I'm wrong, Neil, I don't want to put words in your mouth, that we should legalize and regulate cocaine, methamphetamine, crack, heroin. I think that's an abhorrently dangerous policy, but I at least will give props to Neil for being transparent about it because most of the movement has said, oh, no, 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 we're stopping at marijuana, just like they said they would stop at medical marijuana. Oh, no, 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 we're stopping. We're not going to have anything more than marijuana. But now we're seeing psychedelics, hallucinogens, and right around the corner is uh, heroin, what they call safe supply, so-called, which is what they're doing in Canada, um, giving away, you know, uh, heroin, which, um, you know, by the way, British Columbia, where I am, where I happen to be right now, has the worst heroin problem in North America. It's much worse than in parts of the, the United States per capita. And yet they're, they've doubled down on, on this policy of sort of safe supply, giving out heroin, safe spaces, quote unquote, to use drugs. Um, I absolutely see that as the next frontier, uh, and I think that should make us very worried because as dangerous as marijuana is, when you start having multinational corporations start to market drugs like cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin, good luck. And I do think it's going to have the downstream consequences, Josh, that you also referred to in terms of what kind of society we are and what kind of, you know, what kind of, what kind of world we are, we are contributing to. Uh, Kevin, you're a funny guy. <laughs> Every time you talk about you want to correct me, believe me, buddy, I don't need correcting. <laughs> and my experience in street sales of, of drugs, I believe, is much more than yours. Um, I've worked it is. Under, I don't I, doubt your It's experience. way more than yours. I've worked undercover and, as I said before, commanded multi-jurisdictional task forces for many, many years, and including one half of the state of Maryland. So let's be clear on some things. Marijuana, before we ventured into this place of you know, regulating it um, state by state and moving in the direction of a nation, which we should. Number one moneymaker out there, just about every crew on a corner in our major cities across this country loves selling marijuana, loves selling it. It was easy to make money for it. And I give you credit. It's a good upsell. It's a good attraction to get people in to upsell to heroin or cocaine because more people use marijuana. So when they come to buy the weed, right, now I can introduce you to something else. That's one of the important reasons for getting marijuana out of the illicit market. So you can separate that. So people no longer have to go to the person who's selling multiple drugs, including marijuana. So they bring you in with marijuana and then they get you to well, introduce you to cocaine or, or heroin or meth or something else. The regulated market is now separating that because when you go to a dispensary, that's all you can buy is marijuana. They can't upsell you to a harder drug. If you're and 21. We, and, we, and we can have right. another conversation. We can have another conversation about the other drugs later. But right now we're, we're talking about marijuana. And so, again, a regulated market is much better. When we're talking about the slippery slope and, you know, and some of the other 
things that that can happen have happened. Obviously, under the under the the conditions of prohibition, it's just much worse. It's much worse environmentally. It's much worse as it relative to, to violent crime. It's much worse regarding the quality of the product that people are buying from an illicit market and using. It's much worse at every turn. When you move into a regulated market, obviously there's some challenges. There are many challenges. Marijuana has been prohibited in this country for a very, very long time. And it's going to take time as each policy, as each state comes on board. I, for one, know that each policy is better, not just in how to manage the regulated market of marijuana, but they're also doing a better job when it comes to equity, when it comes to social and racial equity regarding the legal market. So, yes, you're not going to have the best policy right out of the gate. But each state is a laboratory and each state gets to work on crafting a better policy than the, the state before them. And they get to continue to work on that and continue to work on that. That doesn't happen under prohibition policies. Again, it's always in the hands of the criminal marketplace, the gangs and the crews and whoever else. So just one quick point, just to hop in, just to kind of like make sure like the listeners are, are aware of this. The whole kind of laboratories of democracy thing that Neil is talking about there, um, it, it really does kind of play out in our, in our public discourse. I mean, you kind of have some very conservative politicians, people like Ted Cruz, who effectively want to eliminate marijuana as a controlled substance under federal law, just kind of kick it to the state level. That obviously is kind of um, an issue that's currently debated in its own right. Um, but kind of the legal implications of this, whether it should be national versus state, just, just like another kind of one of the very many manifestations of this debate. Um, one one more question that comes immediately to mind, um, you know, we, we, we could start with you. You know, whichever side of this you you fall on, all it takes is kind of a cursory glance at like pure Gallup public polling to see how big of a shift we've had on this issue in the past 15, 20 years. So I'd just be curious from your respective positions, what you think needs to happen to either continue that momentum or in the case of Kevin, obviously, to turn the tide back. Um, so, Neil, do you want to start? I may just talk a little bit about why this massive shift has happened and what you think needs to continue from your perspective to uh, continue that trend. Sure. So when you can, when you look at the polling, I think we're somewhere close to close to two thirds, somewhere around two thirds of the country right now. You know, people are becoming educated. You know, it's again, it's not like back in the days of reefer madness when the internet of you know the 1920s and 1930s was the local newspaper, right? And then you had those conglomerates that controlled everything that went into those newspapers. So people weren't able to educate themselves the way that they are today with the internet. Don't get me wrong, because we all know that not everything you see on the internet is true. But it gives you an opportunity to do your own research. It gives you an opportunity to hear what Kevin's saying, to hear what I'm saying, to, you know, to, uh, to go through that, to find corroborating evidence, to guide you in a particular direction. And I think that's what we're seeing. People are just more savvy today, and they have more information available at their fingertips. And I think that has a, a, a big part to do with the shift that we're seeing when you look at the polling numbers. But again, as more and more states come online, you know, they're also able to see what's happening in their communities, in their states, in their neighborhoods, and then communicate with, with other people. And they're beginning to see that it's not reefer madness. Yes, we have problems. Yes, marijuana, just like any other drug, can be addictive, right? And that's why we need the, the, the regulations and 
and, and, and the opportunity to continue to improve those regulations as we go forward. That's why we need a robust mental health plan system, systems within this country that we've neglected over the ages. You know, so hopefully we'll move in those directions. And I think as a nation, as we see the power that we as individuals have, especially when we come together, I think we'll continue to see those improvements, whether we're talking about mental health or whether we're talking about marijuana policy. Well, first of all, I think people completely conflate the terms decriminalization and legalization. And so when you see these polls asking, do you think marijuana use should be legal, which is exactly what Gallup asks, that is not the same thing as saying, do you think Philip Morris should sell 99% marijuana? Because that's what's happening right now. Uh, and But that's not, that's not the question that's being asked. And actually, Emerson and some other smart pollsters um, separate these questions out. They give people choices. And when you do that, actually support for legalization is less than half. That being said, people are going to vote on a yes or no in a state. And there's no doubt about it. And I would agree here that more people are voting yes than voting no. Although there are several states that have rejected this, that continue to reject it, including several Democrats that, that are leading that charge. Um, so, so I don't think it's only Republicans. Um, but sure, there's been a change overall. I'm not denying that in the acceptance of marijuana over the last 20 years. I don't think that's because people have read the science. I don't think it's because people have been educated. I think it's because people are using their own experience. Like, hey, I drove 10 miles an hour over the speed limit on the freeway. It's It should be safe for everybody. That's the kind of thinking that's going in through through a lot of this, number one. And, 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 and number two, they're clearly, listen, I, I don't want them to take my word for it. You know, Neil, you were just saying, you know, they're not listening to people like Kevin or whatever. I don't want them to listen to people like me. I want them to read every single. No, I said you know, they do review. listen to people like you. Well, well, well not, but I'm saying if they're shifting. Words are important. If shifting. All right. I'm saying if Context. they're shifting, I, right, I want them to read the National Academy of Medicine report that came out three years ago that says that this is much more dangerous than people think, or the American Medical Association position, or any of these other science-based, peer-reviewed, you know, this idea that, like, I can find science for anything, sure, to some extent, but that's also what, you know, Big Tobacco said in the 1950s when we knew tobacco was harmful. It's like, well, there's this, and then there's that, and we're not really sure. That's what mar the marijuana industry is saying. There's like, well, we're, they, they, they obscure the actual facts that are going on. So I think people are severely misinformed. They're conflating decriminalization and legalization. They're not given that choice. So when not when they're not given that choice, they think, yeah, no, prohibition is not a good idea. Um, but just to round out the answer here, uh, I think there will be a day of reckoning or a time of reckoning. I think there will be a time when we have gone way overboard, which is where we're going towards accepting marijuana and we're going to do a course correction we've done it with tobacco you know we, we we accepted it and then now even though it's legal we've done a huge course correction in our society on it uh i think that's why don't gonna we happen. prohibit tobacco i don't well the reason we don't prohibit tobacco is be first of all there's a couple of reasons number one um the you know you had at some point 40 percent of users you almost the majority of people using cigarettes that's a very difficult thing to prohibit same with alcohol uh, number two, tobacco does not affect behavior. And this is very, very important. Tobacco kills because we've added nicotine and many carcinogens to cigarettes, which, by the way, were added by the industry. You know, tobacco was never deadly until big tobacco came on board. That's my point with marijuana. It's gotten so much more harmful because we've allowed corporations to take to come on board. They've manipulated it, made it much more harmful than it was. 
And number two, tobacco does not cause car crashes. Okay, but what about alcohol then? So why don't we yeah. buy the same logic? Yeah. I love the alcohol question. You know why not alcohol? Because we're stuck with alcohol. We have been, the vast majority of Americans, you know, marijuana has been a counterculture drug, meaning not mainstream, meaning a few people, you know, in relative to the majority of the population. Alcohol is the exact opposite. Alcohol has been a mainstream Western civilization intoxicant since before the Old Testament. Now, marijuana has been used for a long time. Neil said that. I agree with him but not in them for the, by the majority of Western civilization. Nowhere near, again, it's why marijuana is counterculture. We're stuck with alcohol. We do a horrendous job regulating alcohol. Alcohol taxes today, when you adjust for inflation, are a fifth of what they were than during the Korean War. The alcohol industry runs roughshod over public health left and right. We, we, we handle that problem terribly. And in my mind, legalizing marijuana because we've legalized alcohol is like saying, I'm going to bust my taillights out because my headlights are broken too. That that doesn't that doesn't square. You're a funny dude, man. I'll tell you, you're really you're really funny, Kevin, but I love you, man. So, I recently sat on a grand jury, and so what that meant was I'm in New York, so for 2 weeks we judged about yeah. 60 some odd cases, decided whether or not to indict. Um yeah. A story for another time, but one thing that I noticed and this was after uh, marijuana had been decriminalized in New York okay. was that at least, I want to say five times, um, when the police officer was explaining why they had stopped the person, why they had pulled them yeah. over, they said the same, and it was like a mantra almost, they said the mm -hmm. same thing. I detected a strong odor of marijuana mm -hmm. coming from the vehicle. And mm -hmm. um, that is because in most states where decriminalization has yeah. taken place, police officers can still use the odor of yeah. marijuana as probable cause, meaning that that kind of racist element actually is very much baked into specifically marijuana policing and is still there when you just decriminalize and don't legalize. I would love for you to respond to that. So those were people that were about to be indicted by a grand jury, and that was the reason why they were pulled. So there was a very serious reason why that, that, that per, they, were, they were committing very serious crimes, and it wasn't about the marijuana. Is that correct? So one of them was trespassing, which is, okay. I don't know how serious okay. you consider that. Um, sure. Two of them well, were... If it's on my house, it's serious, but okay, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So um, in, a, in a park, um, one of yeah. them was trespassing somewhere else. One of them had an illegal yeah. weapon, yes, so, you yeah. know. Right. But still, the, the, the idea well, that this kind of racist element of yeah. stopping people where the probable cause itself is related to something yeah. we know is discriminatory, and that goes away with legalization but does not go away with decriminalization... Um, respond well, to that. I mean, it's the enforcement of that that's discriminatory. Mm -hmm. the, uh, whites and blacks use it relatively the same rate. So actually, per, on its face, it's not discriminatory because they, they do use in the same rates. But the way it's being enforced, it can be. And again, exactly. I, I, I said that. Yeah. But the issue is, frankly, and in Manhattan now, I mean, it's, of course, we can smell it everywhere. Um, the legalization of marijuana has now, um, the NYPD has said, even if you're a minor with less than three ounces, they have no policy to even cite a minor. I don't want a minor to go to, to, to get a criminal record. Let me tell you, I don't want to bring a minor into the criminal justice system. But I also don't think we should look the other way if a 15-year-old is smoking marijuana out, outwardly in public, you know, and, and not, you know, do something, get them help, um, do, you know, have some kind of consequence. And I don't know exactly what that would be, but there, there are choices. So, yeah, I mean, look, I, there's no doubt that there are multiple laws that are implemented in a way that is less than optimal, no doubt about it. They need reform. They need changing. The idea that somehow marijuana legalization is going to bring 
um, racial social justice and racial justice into our society when it is a blip on the radar of the major issues that are happening. Uh, I think, and frankly, when we all know who's making money from marijuana now, um, it's guys that look a lot more like me than they look like Neil. And that is because of this, this sort of fake promise of social justice, which I think has um, been paraded around. So I, listen, I think we need to reform laws. I don't want to be pulling people over where we shouldn't. But at the same time, um, you know, I also think it's it's not something we should just turn our turn a blind eye to either. But there are ways to reform without legalizing. Again, when Neil talks about and when others talk about the people in prison and being reformed, then what's wrong with decriminalizing? Why does somebody have to make money uh, in order for that policy to make sense? Because that is what ha what's happening right now. It is about a race to profit. And that has never ended well in this country from a public health point of view. So, Major Franklin, I'm going to give you the last word. Um, you can either respond to that or you can respond to a larger question that's come up that I think probably a lot of listeners are going to be asking themselves, which is, you know, I don't want my kid to be smoking marijuana. I don't want, you know, my society to be one in which everyone is high. Surely when you legalize something, when you push to legalize something, we're sending a message on some level that this is good. I'd love for you to respond to that because I'm sure people are asking themselves that yeah and eh, like i said earlier words are important and that's why i prefer really to use the term we're going to end the policy of prohibition and not say we're going to legalize i mean technically it's the same thing but we're going to end the policy of prohibition and with that a number of things happen number one we have an opportunity to do something about the violence that's related to the illicit marketplace of, of selling marijuana um, it gives us an opportunity to stop sending people to jail. And, you know, Kevin, you talked earlier about the number of people who are in prison, what they're in prison for, and not for the possession of marijuana. And that's, I agree with you on that relative to prison. The jail is a different story, whether it's for one hour, whether it's for a week, whether it's for a year. It's problematic when you get handcuffs on you for the possession of marijuana and you end up with a record. Um, it gives us, ending prohibition gives us an opportunity to experiment, to come up with this particular policy or that particular policy. It gives us an opportunity to deal with the mental health issues associated with drug use. Again, all of these things without criminalizing people, without criminalizing people, and especially for, for Black folks, that's a very, very damaging thing to someone's life. It gives us an opportunity to deal with many of the things that we've neglected in this country over the years and over the decades. So I'm talking about ending the policy of prohibition relative to marijuana. And now let's decide collectively what's going to work best for this community or that community or this neighborhood and that neighborhood. And just one quick ending comment regarding the odor of marijuana, because I think this is very important, how law enforcement, how we use that odor and how it needs to go. And it will go if we end prohibition. When I, a police officer, stops you for a broken taillight, for a tag light out, for an air freshener hanging from your rearview mirror, and then the next thing I say to you when I come to your car is, hmm, I smell the odor of marijuana. And I've been trained. I know what it smells like. That gives me probable cause to pull you out of your car and to search your car. Or if I knock on your door at your house, now I can search your house. Or on a street corner, I can search your person. 
there is case after case after case documented and documented where there was no marijuana, there never was any marijuana, but how can you refute that as a citizen? How can you challenge that? How can you push back against that? And all the police officer has to say is, well, I did smell it. I didn't find anything. Doesn't mean you didn't have it. And the police officers know this and they use this time and time again to violate Fourth Amendment rights of people. It has to go. And most of those people are black and brown folks. All you gotta do is look at the data from one city to the next. In New York, there's plenty of data uh, regarding this tactic in, in New York City. We're gonna have to end it there. This has gone on for a long time, but it's, it's been too much fun to stop. So uh, thank you so much, honestly, uh, Dr. Sabat and Major Franklin, lively, fun, informed, and engaging. So thanks so much for joining Body and I on Newsweek's The Debate. Thank you both thank so you much. Thank you guys. Thanks, Newley. Thanks, Kevin. That was a lot of fun. Thanks, Neil. Thanks, everybody. So, Badia, that was one of our liveliest, most engaging, informative, and passionate exchanges we've had so far. What was your kind of quick synopsis of what we just heard? Oh, yeah, it was so great. And it's so funny because they agree about so much, but then the things they disagree about, they right. really disagree about. And it, it felt really substantive because the disagreement was about these issues that really matter that they're both so, so knowledgeable about and come at from two places of like extreme credibility and extreme knowledge. I think you hit the nail on the head there. They really do agree on a lot when you when you kind of get past the surface level, um, kind of uh, you, you know criticizing and kind of jumping in over one another. They actually actually really do agree on a lot here, especially vis a vis decriminalization versus outright legalization, et cetera. Uh, but no, that was great, and I fully entrust that the listeners uh, enjoyed it. If you're not already doing so, please subscribe to us on. Apple Podcasts, uh, wherever you get your podcasts, frankly, we are there, surely. So leave us five stars, and we hope you tune in for the next episode of Newsweek's The Debate. See you next time.